1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us. I just finished talking with Marga Becedo about her new book, The Nature and Nurture of Love, From Imprinting to Attachment in Cold War America. This came out just recently in 2013 with University of Chicago Press. Now, as you'll hear over the course of our conversation, this is a book that's going to be of interest to anybody who cares about love, monkeys, robots, geese, Mothers, children, relationships, society, and their intertwined histories. It really does touch very broadly on so many not only historical but also contemporary debates and ways of understanding the place of the individual in a family in society, in the world, and how we and how other people have in various ways at various periods, but particularly here in the context of the period between World War two. And the 1970s, thought about how to prove or support ideas about the relationships between mothers and children, uh, instincts and behavior, love and behavior with respect to different forms of evidence. So Marcus's book looks at the, um, the emergence and development of scientific ideas of the emotional needs of children and of its relationship to the idea of mother love in the U.S. in this period from World War II to the 1970s. It's an extensive interview, so I won't um, talk too much about it here. You'll hear it in the course of our conversation to come. But I will say it's a really fascinating and very fine-grained analysis, not just of the larger social issues at stake that, frame these scientific debates, but also of the ways that the dialogue and the debates about these issues played out on the ground. It's fascinating. It was a total pleasure to talk with Marga about it. I hope you enjoy the book and also the conversation. We're here today to talk with Marga Bichedo about her new book, The Nature and Nurture of Love, From Imprinting to Attachment in Cold War America. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Marga, and thank you for making time to talk with me in the midst of what I know is a very, very busy semester for you.
0: Thank you for inviting me. Of
1: course. So Marga, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? Specifically, how did you come to work on the history of the life sciences?
0: Okay, well, about myself, I I come from Spain, I was a philosopher, and um, progressively my work became more and more historical, and so I decided to do history of science, mm-hmm. and um, I was always interested, and I think for everyone, the, <clears throat> a fundamental question is, how should we act? And, of course, um, how should we act depends of Who are we and what are we made of? So for me, biology has to play a role in explaining who we are, how we act, what things can do, what things are wrong or possible for us. So I was always very interested in what are the consequences of the fact that uh, we are biological beings for explaining human behavior, for understanding our possibilities, emotional, psychological, and behavioral. So that's how I got into the uh, history of biology, and I am interested both in the development of genetics and evolution and also on the implications of those sciences for understanding and explaining human behavior. Great. So-
1: So the book itself um, that we're talking about today looks specifically at scientific ideas of children's emotional needs and mother love in the U.S. from World War II to the 1970s. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to focus on this topic in particular within the larger rubric of the history of the biological sciences?
0: Oh, yes. Well, since uh, I am interested in implications of biology for human behavior, I decided in my dissertation to look at the concept of instinct. Now, so the idea that... Well, there is a natural foundation or there are drives or instincts. The world has changed over history or uh, evolutionary stable strategies is a more modern term. But basically the idea that uh, biology or our evolutionary history has constructed us in such a way that uh, we are more likely or perhaps even determined to act in certain ways rather than others. Now, when you look at the concept of instinct, uh, the mother of all instincts, so to speak, is the maternal instinct. I mean, if there is one behavior that we think is really natural is the love of parents for children, and even more specifically of mothers for their children. So I actually started, and my dissertation is on the maternal instinct, so views, scientific views about maternal instincts from Darwin to the present. But as soon as I started the project, I realized that there was a big ambiguity in the way that the word uh, mother love is used, because mother love may mean the love of mothers for their children or the love of children for their mothers. I mean, we use the uh, concept in both senses. And they are not the same thing. It may be perfectly the case that mothers love their children dearly, but children don't really need or care about their mother's feelings, or the other way around. So I realized there were two things to untangle there, and... I wrote my dissertation on the concept of the maternal instinct and that's a forthcoming book one day, hopefully soon. But then when I wrote, you know, when I wrote this, my first book, I took some material uh, from that dissertation and from that research, but I focus exclusively on the other understanding of mother love, I mean, specifically the question, I mean, why or how have we come to believe that maternal love and care is essential, in fact, determinant for the way uh, children develop? Because this idea, I mean, it's not only a Academic. I mean, I'm sure if you watch television, I'm a big fan of procedurals or anyone from, yeah, anyone from, you know, law and order to criminal minds to you name it. I'll watch them all. But I, I'm sure you have the experience of um, sooner or later when they talk about the past of a criminal, a sociopath, a psychopath. Uh, you know, sooner or later, we see that something went wrong in his or her childhood. I mean, mostly it's he because, you know, most of the criminals we encounter in movies are males. But sooner or later you see that there was a separation from the mother, the mother abandoned the child. So, I mean, I was intrigued about how did we come to see to have this belief, because although it may be perfectly natural, it may be perfectly accepted. I mean, one of the goals of philosophical inquiry and historical inquiry is sort of to probe ideas which we take as a given. So I, you know, didn't start trying to question the need for mother love. I mean, of all people you meet in this world, I am, I completely adore my mother and I'm. Thoroughly attached to her, but even ideas that we take as granted, I like to question or probe them. And this is one that for me was very curious. I mean, is it really the case that we have evidence supporting this, or is it one of these ideas that we take as granted and we go on with it? And that's what led me to think about well, what is the science yes. or what is the scientific evidence? behind this uh, quite widespread idea that children really, really need not only, uh, you know, affection in general and not only care from their families, but they need specifically maternal care and even more specifically mother love, which are two different things. I mean,
1: uh, Marga, thank you. You've already said a little bit about the transformation between dissertation and book. That This actually started out as part of the dissertation that then became a a different kind of object in the course of its becoming a book manuscript, and then the book that we, really wonderful book, um, actually, I should mention, that we're talking about today. Uh, Were there any other aspects of that process of transforming this from one form to another um, that were notable for you that were especially surprising or that you'd like to mention for listeners.
0: Well, for those attempting to follow the same path of going from dissertation to book, I mean, the first surprising thing is how long it takes to do that. I mean, you know, you finish the dissertation and even when you are happy with it or your mentor say, oh, it's good, you know, you can publish it next year. Well, it turns out it takes a few more years to do that, in part because of the, uh, I mean, you may not use all the material, but also... Uh, I mean, in my case, that was part of the issue that I only used part of the research and a few of the chapters that I had written in my dissertation. Uh, but another, um, I I think, question that we all confront is that, well, you want to write what you have to say in a way that not only addresses some philosophical or historical or um, Or academic issues, uh, however important they might be, but you also tell it in a way that you construct a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that uh, it's not a fictional story, but it's a narrative that can bring a reader into it, and so I think that you know, uh, at least for uh, novel authors like me, it's a process that takes some time, just thinking about the construction of the thing.
1: Absolutely. And it, that aspect of what it is to tell a story about the history and philosophy of science, that narrative aspect is often something that, you know, when we're working on dissertations or early on in the process, we're not prioritizing that or we're not always you know, directly um, uh, encouraged to prioritize that as part of what we're working on in the very limited amount of time that we have to produce that kind of a dissertation object. So um, I think this is something that works really, really well in the book. And hopefully over the course of our conversation, we'll be able to also give listeners a sense of this unfolding narrative that brings us into the lives of characters and their ideas also um, over the course of this period we're looking at. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Margot, one of the things that's really, for me, uh, wonderful about the book and really notable about the book from the beginning to the very end that runs through every single one of the chapters touches on something that you've already briefly mentioned in your own account of what brought you to this project and your own background and interests. And that is the way that you've managed in this book to weave together really seamlessly what we might consider to be a historical and a philosophical way of approaching um, the, this moment or, the, or this extended moment in the life sciences. It's really striking here that you're bringing us into not just the history and social context and cultural context of the development of these ideas, but also into the, in a really clear way, I should put it, the Evolution of the ideas themselves and giving us a critical vocabulary within which or with which we can evaluate and understand the kinds of debates that are happening in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of your own craft? Are, is this something that you're explicitly conscious of as one of your goals for your work and for this book in particular that is uh, bringing together the history and philosophy of science? Or is this something that just kind of happens for you naturally and it's it's not um, so much of an explicit? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually,
0: both. I mean... Um it, it was a big headache. I mean, uh, first of all, as you said, it happens to me almost naturally because I worked as a philosopher for many years and I have a natural sort of tendency to really want to address their philosophical issues in their wide sense of the word. I mean, uh, um, but at the same time, I was very conscious that uh, the way that history of science has been written um, lately is not by a, a mix in the two. It's also not by... Because one thing that is obvious in philosophy, in philosophy, people... Mm, also pass judgment, to put it clearly. Philosophers not only try to untangle a problem and see what are the different um, assumptions and the real position, but they also try to assess whether the position is right or wrong. That's a goal of philosophical analysis. But in history, that's a no-no. I mean, in part because we think, okay, if you try to do that, you're never going to understand your historical actors, and the way that the science was done in a specific uh, period, and you will approach them from a presentist perspective, meaning from the beliefs that we accept today and somehow impose those beliefs upon them. And of course, that's a big um, concern. So I always try to ask myself, well, am I being fair to my actors? I mean, am I really recognizing? that they worked at least 50 years ago and they were not aware of some of the things that I know now that biology and history has um, uh, discovered now, but they weren't aware of those uh, results. So, I mean, for me, that was a constant struggle. I want my book to be historically accurate and historically um, uh make a valuable contribution to the history, but at the same time, both because of my philosophical inclinations, but also because I've come to realize that, okay, when the history takes us to the present, um, why not? I mean, why should historians censor ourselves? I mean, after all, we are writing a history that illuminates these issues. And in fact, what we come to believe about those issues depends on that history. So why should we write the history and then sort of say, okay, and now that's the history and that's it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there may be people who want to do that, and that's a perfectly, uh, you know, wonderful way of doing history. But if you happen to be a person who says, okay, my particular historical analysis has led me to believe that there is no support for some of these ideas or there is support for some ideas more than for others, why couldn't I go on and sort of on the basis of that historical analysis, which I hope stands on its own, but at the same time reflect on what that historical analysis tells us about our current beliefs. And so very consciously, but after a very painful process, (laughs) I did come to the conclusion that okay, if a little bit inter we have through the history, but also more explicitly at the end, I was going to draw the what I thought were the conclusions for current scientific beliefs and
1: research. So So let's get into it, because not only are you, um, for listeners who, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, not only are you interweaving these, um, what really feel here to be in your analysis, not, you know, incompatible or different approaches into the story, you're also telling a great story. And that story is populated by robots and monkeys and geese and wasps and all kinds of really interesting people. So let's get to the story. Um, You open with an anecdote from Steven Spielberg's AI in which this really demonstrates to us and opens... Um, the the kind of issue or the importance of an issue that will continue to run through the whole book, and that is a vision in which emotions are central to what it means to be a human being, and the capacity to love is central to being human. And the book is going to go on to show this is, a, this is a historical development. It wasn't always necessarily like that, and we ought not take that for granted as always and um, necessarily existing as something that characterizes our society. So the book is going to do this by exploring a series of questions. How did we come to hold these views about the centrality of the emotions and the role of motherly love in determining an individual's emotional development? What social and scientific conditions made it possible for this notion of mother love to emerge? And what research supported this vision? So you take us into different ways that um, scientists negotiated different forms of evidence, and we'll get to that. And finally, what are the consequences of these ideas socially, personally, emotionally, culturally, for children and for mothers is an important part of the story. Now, the book does this uh, or explores these questions by arguing that during the period between World War II and the 1970s, many prominent researchers from various fields established a view that linked the emotions integrally with the self and established a view consequently that a mother's love or mother love. Um, More broadly, as as you um, pointed out the difference between those two notions early in this conversation, mother love determines the emotional development of an individual. Okay, so that's I just um, threw all that out there to set the stage for listeners so that they know kind of where we're going. Okay, now there's a central figure to this story, and this is a British psychoanalyst and psychiatrist named John Bowlby. His ethological theory of attachment was really, really influential to this story, and he becomes um, really influential in the context of psychological theories of the 20th century. So without further ado, can you introduce Bowlby for us? Um, What do we need to know about him? Who is he so that we can understand the role that he goes on to play in this story?
0: Sure. Uh, John Bowlby was a British psychoanalyst and psychiatrist. Um he was uh from a very wealthy and um sort of noble family I mean um, so this is all important um, this little bit of uh, bio information about him to see that from very early on he has very high status socially and also scientifically in the British community and um Bobby, very soon after, you know, uh, World War, after the Second World War, as um, you know, was uh, in charge of a study um, that was being funded by the World Health Organization to look into uh, what do children need to develop into emotionally healthy individuals. Because as you can imagine, this is... Um, Um, question that is not only a major concern for parents, since all parents want to have children who do well, are happy and um are emotionally stable. But also for society. Society certainly are interested in finding out how do they, you know, develop emotionally healthy citizens and not people who are, you know, sociopaths or who are especially aggressive. And in a century which had witnessed two tremendous world wars, this was a major concern after World War Two. So the um, World Health health organization gives this task to Balbi and that's also very important to understand the impact and the role of Balbi because from very early on when he starts his research on what uh, eventually would become his attachment theory, he's doing so backed up by a major international research organization and in fact his first results or uh, come out as a publication of the who the world world health organization and this is important to understand the impact of those results because they don't come only from one scientist they come from one prestigious scientist back or as presented um By a major international organization, that it's putting these views as not only the views of Bolby, but the views that Bolby has collected, and uh, from many different labs and researchers all over the world. Because Bolby actually did travel when he's given this task by the WHO. He travels to many countries in Europe. He travels to the U.S. He visits different research uh, um, facilities, different hospitals for children, and he tries to um, put forward the view that he thinks is the convergence of the results of many people. So that's when he first presents his view. Still, he doesn't develop the theory, but he presents his view that, uh, that children need mother love to develop well.
1: So so this is a view that actually is really interesting and that's going to shape the rest of the story. He identifies the mother, as you put it in the book, as the psychic organizer of her child's mind. He analogizes love to vitamins, which is really interesting. And he focuses um, in many ways on the mother as the central element in the personal environment of the child. So we'll talk about the intricacies of these ideas as they shape what happens in the rest of the story in a little while. Um, but what we get next in the story is that, okay, he's, he's put forth these ideas. Not everyone agrees with these ideas. And he is looking for ways to shore up these ideas and to shore up his arguments. And one of the places that he finds, um, tools to shore up those arguments and to develop those arguments is in the work of a scientist named Conrad Lorenz. And so let's talk a little bit about Lorenz. Um, Bowlby is going to, ad- adopt to defend his own ideas, Lorenz's idea of imprinting. So let's see kind of what that is and how we get there. Chapter two looks at Conrad Lorenz, this Austrian scientist, his views about instance, instincts rather than imprinting, as he develops this new science of ethology with a Dutchman, Nico Tinbergen. So let's start out this part of the story by talking a little bit about them. Can you introduce Lorenz for us? Um, and then maybe we can move to Tinbergen before we sort of weave them together and understand what's new about this science that they're developing?
0: Sure. Lorenz uh, is an Austrian um, scholar, I mean, also from a very wealthy family who uh, um, lives in Altenburg and grows up um, From his early childhood, he was very interested in animals. He observed them around his mansion uh, in the outskirts of Vienna. And he eventually tries to put his personal interest into animals, into observing animals, develop it into a science, as you said, with his friend and collaborator, Nico Timbergen. And um, it is important to know that Um, plenty of other people have done research on uh, animal behavior, but for Lorenz and then later for Timbergen, the main goal is to institute really a different Scientific field on the that will uh, whose goal will be to study instincts because instincts they took it to be the central explanatory concept for social behavior. So their goal was to take the instinct and have it as the basis of what they call the biological study of behavior. <laughs>
1: So, Marco, what is an instinct for them? I mean, this is, um, I think this is worth talking about a little bit because this is a term that comes up in our casual conversation all the time nowadays, but they're using it in a very particular way. And Lorenz, in, in particular, is putting forward this idea of an instinct and supporting it with very interesting kinds of models that differentiate. The nature of his idea from the kinds of ideas that other people in other associated fields might be putting forth based on different kinds of evidence. So to get us there, what is his idea of an instinct and what's important about that idea that we have to understand to understand what happens later in the story as people are responding to this idea of the instinct?
0: Absolutely. It's central, not only because, as you say, they have a particular conception of instincts, but because later we will see that, well, there are many displacements, so to speak, about this idea. Because from for the ethologies, you know, ethology being the science of behavior that Lorenz and Timbergen want to develop, the um, uh, These things are what they call fixed behavior patterns. So this is important because look at the terms. I mean, behavior patterns, well, it means that are behaviors that are repetitive, that, uh, um, you know, are fixed. And also it means we're talking about something that is observable. Behaviors are observable. If you take your cup or if you move your arm, I can see it. I mean... But later on, often, you know, we will see that we're talking, when we're talking both about animals and uh, humans, uh, we're talking about emotions. Now, this is important because you can see maternal care, you cannot see mother love. So this is important in the sense that somehow through this story and, um, all of the people involved, the ethologists and psychoanalysts and other people have to find a way of correlating behaviors with emotions uh, because they are not the same thing. And often, of course, what we do is we make an inference from one to the other. I mean, we see people, uh, um, you know, behaving in a way that Lead us to imagine that they are sad, but you can also uh, and William James wrote about this, you can also see someone you know uh, smiling and laughing and nevertheless being in sad inside so this is an as we say in philosophy epistemological problem I mean how do you know or how the emotions of people, how do you deduce? something that is internal, that it's about the inner mind, that it's subjective from uh, something that is observable, like behavior patterns. So this it's important to keep in mind because the, uh, the concept that Lorenz is using is very limited although he himself and others then will use his views about instincts and about imprinting, as you mentioned, to make assertions that go beyond the realm of just fixed behavior patterns.
1: Um, So what's happening here, as, as you mentioned, just to kind of bring us into Bowlby from here is Lorenz is developing this idea of the, in, in ways, the biological basis of a mother's love, um, through this idea of an instinct that is released through the imprinting of an infant onto the mother. And he, though he's doing this uh, kind of experimentation on ducks and geese and sort of other animals, he extends his theories from the evidence that he's getting from animals and applies it to humans. And that's going to be something um, that others are going to take up in their critiques of his ideas later on. But before we get to the critiques of his ideas, you bring us into um, uh, Bowlby's use of these ideas. And this is really, really interesting. Chapter three, looks at Bowlby's ideas, his use of Lorentz, and what happens um, in the reception of these ideas in the context of the U.S. during the 1950s. So this is a context in which there's a heightened social concern about emotional pathology, as you put it. There's also a context in which we see more and more mothers in the workplace in this post-war context, and this gives rise to a heightened interest in what the consequences are of this increased role of women in the workplace for the relationship of mothers and children and families. Bowlby's work attracts a lot of attention in this context. So can you talk about that? What is he arguing um, in his theory that relates to this larger context of women in the workplace and how are his arguments received?
0: Okay, sure. I mean, most his, uh, historiography and other historical accounts has foc- have focused on the reception of Balby in Britain for obvious reasons, because he was British and he is... But uh, what I want to argue here and in this chapter is that um, Bob's ideas have a big impact also in the US. Uh, in part because his ideas sometimes, without even referring to him by name, and uh, sort of extrapolated or used or recycled by other um, figures, and uh, like, um, uh, and sometimes also, uh, mm, Because of the social context, but there is a confluence of factors that lead to uh, really provide um, very good reception for Borby's ideas. And mainly, as you say, there is the heightened concern about mothers wanting to stay in the um, workplace. I mean, because as you know, during World War II, many women were called and even included. A large proportion of mothers of young children uh, are called into the workplace. And when the men return from the war, they are asked or they are not needed uh, as much in the workplace and um, there is, uh, you know, a concern about that. What will be the impact for their children of mothers staying working outside the home? So, this was a major concern in American society. And um, it was also a little bit unique because of what many people perceive as changes, even in women's attitudes. I mean, Uh, For a long time, or among many people, well, you know, it was acceptable that women are working because they are serving the war or because they have to. Okay, if they are poor and, uh, you know, in one household they need two salaries, there is no option. But what's interesting about the context of... um, You know, uh, after World War II in the U.S. and the 50s, is that there are many middle class families where women are saying, no, we want to work because we like working and because outside the home, they were always working in in the home. But uh, that also, uh, you know, um, gives a lot of uneasiness because, um, well, what is that change in women's attitude? going to do to their children? I mean, are children going to feel rejected? Are children going to be abandoned because they may have child care but not mother love? And that's why I say it's important to see that Bowlby and uh, later supporters of attachment theory, they are not only talking about care. I mean, because care, to a certain extent, you can find a good substitute, or you can find some other family member, or you can have mothers who provide a very good care. But still, for attachment theories, is not only, well, uh, is the mother or the mother substitute, or whether it is an aunt or a grandmother or, or, or a babysitter, providing the care that the child needs, the behavior that the child needs, but it's also the mother doing it with the right feelings. And that's why working outside the home is also so problematic because, in a sense, it signals that, well, maybe the mother, at least for some hours a day, is happy doing something else. And this, by itself, for many of these authors, could have a detrimental effect on the emotional life of children. Which is, you know, quite interesting in my opinion.
1: <laughs> and also, and, and I won't ask you to talk about this because this is a different kind of question that's appropriate for a different kind of interview. But I'll just signal that listeners who might be interested in the really contemporary debates um, right now and discussions about work, the combination of work and motherhood and um, its consequences for understanding women and children and families, um, will find much of interest in this book in terms of a different historical context. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to ask you about that yeah. contemporary resonances right now. Okay, so we see that Bowlby is... Arguing through his work that the mother should stay home with the babies instead of relying on childcare, and he does this on the basis of sort of claiming authority from biology in support of his ideas. And he's doing this by invoking the work of Lorenz that we just talked about on imprinting an instinct. Okay. So that brings us to the close of the first part of the book so that we understand sort of where we are um, with Bowlby and with the in, in terms of the landscape of these ideas. So he puts forth these ideas. But of course, in the context of the sciences of the time, there are challenges to this idea to these ideas. And part two looks at the criticism that's leveled at. Bowlby's ideas at Lorentz, and in general at this biologizing of human emotions and specifically at the idea of Bowlby's sort of or Bowlby's idea of the role of mother love in an infant's development. Now, all of the criticisms that you or most of the criticisms that you describe in this second part of the book emphasize the importance of environment, they emphasize historical contingency, and they emphasize individual experience. experience in critiquing Bowlby's views. So let's talk about some of those briefly. The fourth chapter focuses in and looks at objections raised specifically by comparative psychologists. Uh, Now, one of the most important figures in this chapter is a guy named Daniel Lehrman. He is rejecting the notion of instincts as developed by Lorenz and Bowlby, and he's doing it in really interesting ways. So, can you talk about a little bit about this? What are who's Lehrman? What are his critiques, and in what way are those important for understanding more generally the way that comparative psychologists are responding to, extending, and critiquing uh, these ideas?
0: Absolutely, and if I may, before I go into Lehrman, uh, uh if I may say so myself, I want to point out that. Actually, I think a major contribution of my book is recovering this history of criticisms because um, uh, the standard histories of attachment, you know, well, uh, Bobby develops his ideas and he appeals to Lorenz and later Harlow. And, uh, well, there were some criticisms, but... um, but mainly, you know, uh, attachment continues to this present. So, in a sense, something that was, to me, was very interesting as, uh, you know, when I was doing my detective work as a historian, and, and then for the story is to realize that even at the time that Bob is putting his ideas forward, the, there is a huge history of uh, criticism that, we haven't heard about in part it's because some of the people later on went to do other things in part it's because although Lerman is well known in the history of biology, he's not well known uh, as a critic or as uh, someone whose ideas have relevance for this debate. So some of the figures that I, um, uh, examining the second part of the book, as you say, which is the one challenging the whole enterprise of explaining human behavior, including um, human emotions and specifically mother love, uh, explaining them through the framework of instincts are people that have not been well known as part of their critical um, uh, as critics of this story. So I think that, you know, I like to point out that in this sense, I'm sort of incorporating them to this history. And, uh, what is very interesting about Lerman is that, uh, well, Many things, but Lehrman is a student of animal behavior, a brilliant student who, uh, even before he finished his PhD, although he was already uh, sort of an, an older student, he publishes a paper in 1953, which to this day is the major... Uh, paper uh, seen and even to this day is studied as the major criticism, uh, overall criticism to uh, Condor Lorenz and in general ethologists' attempt to explain human behavior uh, by appealing to instincts, and uh, he does so by pointing out that well, there are several uh, several issues. One is that. It's very difficult to separate in any behavior, even in, a, you know, an animal uh, raised from infancy, what is innate or instinctual and what is learned. I mean, for example, the standard procedure and the one that Lawrence defended was deprivation experiments. I mean, experiments where you raise an animal without an input. Input, and you see whether that makes a difference in the development. But Lerman, in my opinion, rightly points out that you iso- have isolated the animal from one input, but you don't know which other inputs or environmental influences or are significant to explain the development of that behavior. So he rejects, and uh, many people later did too deprivation experiments as the vehicle to make this separation. And secondly, and also equally important, I mean, uh, Lehrman uh, makes the point that you really cannot understand the behavior of any animal, right? a human animal or a pigeon, unless you know its ontogenetic history, meaning, uh, you know, um the history of that individual. I mean, Lorenz was appealing or was calling for the significance of phylogeny or the evolutionary history. What has natural selection constructed as part of the design of an organism. And Lehrman, who is thoroughly uh, Darwinian and also a student of animal behavior, he realizes that that's very important. But at the same time, he says, okay, there is our phylogenetic history. There is also our ontogenetic history, which is the history of the individual animal. And he says both are important to understand the final result, so to speak. I mean, when you are trying to understand the behavior of an individual, you need to know both histories. And this, I think, is his major contribution. And, and by the way, uh, perhaps i like to point out that uh, Lehrman's critique and Lehrman's work, which was very important, but at the same time, uh, well, a little bit not forgotten in the sense that Lehrman died very young. And, um, of his fame, but um, published very little. I mean, he didn't publish books. He published very few articles, but all very influential. But Lerma has been rediscovered by the new evolutionary development movement, and it's sort of the the hero of the new research into paying attention to ontogeny. So his views are well-known today, but they have never been Incorporated into a discussion of attachment theory. And I think this is important because uh, Lerma himself was very aware of the development of these ideas. And although he didn't write specifically against attachment, his criticism of the concept of instinct provi- uh, put forward by Lorenz is key to understand what. Uh, it's also problematic about attachment theory. Great. Thank
1: Great. you, you Mark. So yes. if we had Lorentz arguing that behavior results, as, as you put it in the book, from the unfolding of a predetermined plan that was set in motion by evolution, Lehrman, in contrast, is arguing that the behavior results from an interaction between the organism and the environment. He's also critiquing, um, this is another really interesting part of this book, he's critiquing the Sort of some of the social policy measures that Lorenz had drawn from his theory as being racist. And this is um, for, for those who are interested in the intersection between science and politics, there's a whole thread of this story that looks at um, implications of scientific ideas in terms of how we understand race. Um, that looks at Lorenz's involvement in the Nazi party. That is, it's, I'm not going to ask you to talk about that because I'm sure you know. It's we. I want to get to the stuffed monkeys, um, and you know, I want to get to the stuffed monkeys. So we're going to get there. But I just want to mention it for listeners. There's a really interesting thread here of this story that looks at the interactions that these scientists have with social theories and social ideas and political ideas. That's an important part of what's going on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um,
0: May I I know you want to move on, but... No, oh, no, go on. to say that, yeah, it's an important part all, also because it is often used by many people who dismisses. Uh, Lerman's ideas by saying okay, well, what can you expect? I mean, of course Lerman didn't like Lorenz. Lerman discovered pretty early that Lorenz had been a supporter of the Nazi party and Lerman was Jewish, he was leftist and we don't need to sweep that under the rug. I mean, yeah, Lerman was a supporter of uh, the Communist Party and Lerman was Jewish, but I want to also claim that yeah, but Let's pay attention also to his critique and to the evidence of his critique and to the power of his uh um Analysis of both the framework and the theoretical ideas that uh, Lorenz is putting forward and of the empirical evidence, because Lerman himself was also a top researcher in the field of bear behavior. So, I mean, the politics is important not only as a site or additional layer, but because the actors themselves often used it. In this case, for example, Lorenz uh, used to dismiss uh, Lerman's critique as a uh, critique that just mm, was put forward for uh, ideological reasons. But, I mean, I'm sure that Lerman didn't like Lorenz, but uh, or Lorenz's ideas, I mean, uh, in the sense that it doesn't take much to realize that, um, you know... If you are Jewish, or even not Jewish, you're not going to like, uh, uh, personally, an individual who was a supporter of uh, the Nazi party. But let's not just focus also on uh, that aspect and ignore that he had a very uh, systematic critique of the whole ethological program. (laughs)
1: Great. Thank you, Marga. So as we sort of move on from this to the later part of the story, we see as a result of these critiques, um, we had talked about the science of ethology involving not just Lorenz, but also Tinbergen. And as a result of these critiques, Tinbergen sort of steps back a little bit. Um, he, you know, He's able to um, respond to these critiques. He changes his mind a little bit. And uh, it steps away from some of the language that he and Lorenz had been using to describe these phenomena, but Lorenz doesn't. Lorenz is very much um, still involved in vigorous critique, and we'll, we'll look at the results of that um, by the end of our conversation. Now, you also have a chapter here that I'm not going to purely, um, purely as a matter of time, I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about, but I want to mention it because it's an important part of the story. Chapter five looks at reactions to Bowlby's theories by psychoanalysts. And this is an interesting part of the story because this becomes a disagreement over, in part, what kinds of evidence can be used to ground arguments about the needs and the motives of human beings. And so one of the consistent critiques that we see coming out of psychoanalysis and its engagement with Bowlby's ideas and with, to some extent, Lorenz's ideas, is that by focusing only on behavior and by reducing drives to biology, to biological instincts, these theories are eliminating the kind of subjective aspect of behavior, as you put it in the book, and of emotion that are actually central to accounts of the mind as used by and given by psychoanalysts. So this is a part of the book, although... Um, I won't ask you to talk about that. That's particularly interesting for historians and philosophers of science or just for general readers who are interested in issues of on what evidentiary basis are the theories of and debates about scientific knowledge. uh, On what basis do they unfold for those of us who are interested in evidence and its histories? It's a really interesting part of the story. So this brings us to the monkeys. Um, I have to ask you about the monkeys. Um, In part, uh, this relates to your author picture on the jacket of the book, which is probably the best author picture that I've ever seen. um, Involves you and a stuffed monkey. And the reason why that is comes out and becomes clear in chapter six of the book. Chapter six looks at a moment in the story that's perhaps um, among the most well-known to readers who might be familiar with the history of biology, the history of research on Lebanon mothers. And this is Harry Harlow's famous experiments involving rhesus monkeys that are raised with surrogate mothers made of cloth or made of wire. This is a fascinating part of the story. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, for listeners who are not familiar with these experiments, what's going on here in these experiments? Um, what is Harlow doing and what consequences do these experiments have for the development of the, the ideas that we've been talking about for the bulk of the book so far? Yeah, sure. And
0: just as an anecdote, yeah, that's my... Uh, there. In the picture is my step monkey Harry. <laughs> always been named after Harry Harlow, which I got as a present after I wrote about Harry Harlow. So uh, that's why you know he's there in the picture with me. But Harry Harlow is it. The- Key, key part of the story because even to this day and if you open a lot of uh, textbooks in psychology and certainly many of the histories of attachment theory i mean they present as bold be uh, providing a you know a synthesis of ethology and psychoanalysis and putting forward this idea of ethological um, theory of attachment behavior but i Theoretical idea or framework to understand uh, children's mm, need for mother love, which is supported by experimental research, and the major experimental research that uh, attachment theorists appeal to is the work of Harry Harlow. So Harry Harlow, for you know, for many authors, is uh, the experimental. Um, Lack of attachment theory, so to speak. And, um. You know, when I looked at these experiments, I realized that this is a very complicated story. And, and really, in a humble way, I'd like to say that to this day, I wake up thinking about these experiments and, in a sense, realizing that there is even further complexities that I didn't address in this chapter. Because the experiments are very simple, but, you know, the ramifications and... Uh, are complex and also the history of the experiments, which is what I analyze and what I do different from other camps, um, are complex. So basically, briefly, um, Harry Harlow uh, raised some um, uh, resource monkeys. Where what he called substitutes for mothers, which were basically two dolls. One was made, uh, or two artificial dolls. One was made wire, and the other um, had was made of wire, but was covered with a terry cloth. And the wire mother uh, had... Um, a bottle that provided milk, and the cloth mother uh, didn't have, provided comfort, what he called contact comfort, but no milk. And here, there were many uh, variations and permutations and combinations of the experiment, but basically, the basic setup was this, and was put forward as an experiment to try to find out whether the fact that the resource monkeys got the milk or uh, nourishment from one doll would be sufficient to develop for them to develop an attachment to that doll and basically what he found out is that um, the monkeys ate from the wire mother with the bottle, but they spent most of their their time with the cloth mother um so and that you know uh, uh it was taken to be a, um uh sort of to show that uh, providing nourishment was not sufficient to explain the um, Attachment of the monkey for the mother. I mean, all of this. Of course, when we say the mother, we should be saying the doll and all these things. So I'm I'm glazing over a lot of displacements here, on which Harry Harlow even at the time was also called upon. But what are we talking about? Love, or are we talking about attachment, or are we talking how do we know the preferences? And I like to say that to this day, the experiments are often presented in really a variety of of ways, some of them which are completely incorrect in the sense that often I see them represented as okay, the monkeys chose uh, to stay with the cloth mother, even uh, you know if that meant starvation, and that is completely incorrect. The, mo- the monkeys went and ate <laughs> from the wire mother, and then went to the other mother, which was, you know, warmer and, and uh, more comfortable because it was covered with the cloth. So, but, uh, you know, what Harlow did, which is also interesting and often not pointed out in many accounts of his work, is that in his initial report, he took that or his results uh, not as a... Um, Not as evidence that children needed their mothers or resource monkeys needed their mothers, but as evidence that anyone could mother. He said, look, if all they need is contact comfort, all they need is a warm body, so to speak, to cling to, then anyone, including fathers, could be substitutes for good mothering. And, uh, you know, in the chapter, I showed that, well, this, you know, ignited a lot of controversy and a controversy that transcended the walls of academia because there were many women. I don't even mention the complicated story, there, but there were many women who wrote to him, who wrote to the president of the University of Wisconsin, where he was carrying out his experiment, complaining that, you know, that Harlow was... Um, Putting down mother love, others, other women saw it as a liberatory move. Well, if fathers can mother, you know, there is life after motherhood or before motherhood. So the experiments, I think one of the things that I point out is that even in their own time allowed for a variety of interpretations. But interestingly enough, also uh, one thing I do is that I follow the history of the experiments. It's not only this famous experiment that he presented it in in uh, his um, address to the American Psychological Association, but he continued and uh, and the history of those monkeys who then grow up and of course did not turn out so well because uh, despite the fact that. The, um, Clothed mother was very welcoming and it was a mother that was always available to them. When they grow up and become adolescents they do not behave like normal adolescents they were not interested in each other when they are put together in a cage with other monkeys and they are not able to perform uh, sexual behavior and they are not able and when they are inseminated the females are inseminated uh, they are um sort of brutal and sometimes they even murder their own children. So obviously something had gone wrong in the normal development of resource monkeys and at this point um, Bolby takes these results to say that okay we can see here that uh, it's not so easy to provide a mother substitute that uh, children, well you know in the extrapolation from racist monkeys to children, but infants in general do really need a real mother and a real mother with the real feelings. So at this point, you know, the evidence that these monkeys who were raised with artificial or substitutes mothers do not do well uh, is taken to support bulbous views about um, the need for mother love. But interestingly, one could continue even farther, seeing what happened at Harlow's laboratory, and what I explained there is that later on Harlow raised resource monkeys by uh, trying to assess whether it was really mother or it was also other monkeys, because obviously what uh, the the first monkeys he had used were not only deprived of mother of a real natural mother and given a substitute, they were also deprived or any, of any other social contact. So at some point, Harlow devises experiments to try to figure out if what resource monkeys need is mothers or peers. And uh, he ends up concluding that, of course, mother love is important and mothers are important, but if one had to choose between the two, and this is you know Harlow's um, opinion at this point in time, that Peers were able to substitute for mothers better than mothers for peers. That is to say that if you raise uh, the resource monkeys only with mothers but no other social contact, they still don't develop well emotionally. But if you raise them only with peers and without mothers, they more or less become sort of normal adults. So one had to make this difficult choice Carlo is saying peers would be better than mothers. But nevertheless, later on, he um, developed further research and experiments to, uh, I cover this very briefly in the book, but to make the case um, that he and his research team uh, that, well, there are different. Uh, affectional systems and to what infants need or individuals need. It's not only one, but that they're, you know, the relationship of the infants to the mother, the relationship of the infant to the father, the infant to other peers, and that all these systems and their integration is necessary for the normal emotional development of an individual. Thank you,
1: thank thank you so much, so much Marga. Um, So this is actually actually, bringing us to, uh, you know, toward the end of our interview. I would love to keep you for another three hours to talk about this. There's (laughs) lots more in the book we could talk about for another two hours. What I'll do instead is I'll just mention for listeners, rather than asking you to talk about it so that I don't keep you... For the entire day, that there is a third part of the book. And so after we um, are brought into this really fascinating story of uses and critiques of these ideas, we come back to Bowlby and Lorenz And you have two chapters um, here at the end of the book that are really interesting, very fine-grained, and really um, quite fascinating accounts of the ways that Bowlby's relationship with another scientist, Mary Ainsworth, who's doing work on infants in Uganda and in Baltimore, is actually used to shore up his own uh, or support for his own theory and the nature of their relationship, which is really interesting. You also look at the ways that, despite this sharp criticism... Bolby and Lorenz continue to support each other, and you look at the sort of the nature of that support um, and the consequences of that for the development of their arguments. And so, there are other really interesting parts of this story that we don't have a chance to talk about in detail, but that I want to signal for listeners as a way of sort of closing this narrative and bringing us to a conclusion. Now, in the conclusion. You you do a couple of really interesting things here. One of the things that you do is to look at some key factors that explain the success of attachment theory in the face of widespread criticism. Another thing that you do, and, and I want to um, ask you if you could speak to this just as the um, the last question before we conclude with the concluding questions, because you did mention it at the beginning of the interview, and that is you reflect here on what this historical account says about the value of the theory that you're looking at. So I wonder if you wanted to say just a little bit about that before we move on.
0: Yes, actually, this is the part where, as I said, it was I have many doubts, but I decided to take the plunge and to take a leap and say, OK, I, you know, all you read before was my historical interpretation. But but, you know, let me uh, say, what do I think that this history tell us for the current standing of attachment research and um, I come out very bluntly, as you know, if you read the book, say that, well, I think that uh, the evidence in support of um, attachment theory is really um, not that so, because many of the criticisms that I analyze in part two, that is the challenges presented by a variety of members of the scientific community, but mainly represented the challenges uh, of Daniel Lehrman, the challenges of Anna Freud, uh, the challenges also provided by the complexity of Harry Harlow's experiments with um, resource monkeys have not been addressed. at all by attachment theorists who continue today appealing to the large and uh, framework of um, Bowlby and claiming that biology lends it authority, but. As I say, well, the biology involved here, the concept of imprinting, the concept of instinct were very criticized. And uh, Harry Harlow's, at the very least, tells a complicated story that cannot support simplistic views about the need for mother love. And at worst, it really doesn't support uh, Bowlby's views at all. So that what I'm calling here is for, a, you know, sort of a, re-examination of the foundations of this theory, which is still very um, um, accepted today, and I am claiming really the history showed us that there are big, big gaps in the evidence that and big gaps in the framework and even in the epistemology. How could we possibly know what are the feelings of mothers and children beyond their behavior and the impact of one on the other and that i i I think uh, you know it's still an open question so
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. As I mentioned um, just a little bit earlier, there's a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to get to. It's an extraordinarily rich study. And we could, again, talk for hours and hours about the stuff that we left out. Is there anything, though, in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention? And um, perhaps especially uh, for the benefit of listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
0: Well, perhaps saying that, you know, even if you are not interested in attachment theory or mothers or children or love or monkeys or dogs, those are many things. If you're not interested, at least in some of them, I mean, I don't know, but... Uh, But even if you're not interested in the specifics, I think um, these stories of larger significance to um, why the trends that I see uh, in uh, the field of explaining behavior and emotions, because it's really a part of a larger turn towards biologizing sentiments and. Was, uh, you know, using merely biology to explain human social behavior and emotions. This is something that I think we need to look into, not because I think biology doesn't play a role. Because often when you question this, they say, "Oh, but uh, do you question evolution, or do you question the significance of our biological uh, makeup?" Not at all. Of course, we're biological beings, and I'm a thorough convinced Darwinian. But the question is: Is that all there is, and is that all we need to understand human? Uh, social behavior and emotions. And I see an increasing sort of um, drive towards this reductionistic, I would call reductionistic uh, picture in which just by, you know, looking at the brain or looking at our biology or appealing in a very general way uh, to the biological basis of behavior, we think we've explained a lot. And I just want to prove this, I mean, after all saying that there is a biological basis that biology is important, this is all very general and and may it's all true, but not of highly explanatory value so even if you are not interested in the particular case study, I think it is a story that speaks to larger issues about uh, you know, the role of biology and the appeal um, to biology to explain human behavior in general.
1: Great. Absolutely. And, but also, who's not interested in love and monkeys? And, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, you're right. I hope. <laughs> so, Margaret, now that the book is out, congratulations on the book. What's next for you? What project or projects are inspiring you right now?
0: Well, as you can imagine, because of what I said at the beginning, I left uh, and finish the other part of the story about, about mother love. So I will complete uh, my studies, uh, the book, a monograph on uh Ideas about uh, maternal instincts from Darwin to the present, which, you know, you may think has a lot of overlap with the story of Bolby, but it doesn't. I mean, I I do claim that Bolby's views have ideas about our conception of maternal instincts, but the history of uh, what people thought from Darwin, William James, and uh, both. I uh, start with Darwin and William James as major biologists and psychologists, but the story of uh, what um, scientists and society has thought about maternal instinct is much wider, and that's the second book project. And the third book project, which I hope to finish soon, is a history of views about autism. Because, you know, it may seem unrelated, but it's not in the sense that uh, when autism was first identified as a separate condition in 1943 by Leo Kanner, very soon in the context of all the ideas about mother love that I have explored in the book that we are discussing, very soon is uh, autism is considered to be a, a consequence of the absence of mother love. I mean, if there is no mother love, children retreat into autistic walls. Uh, so it is, I mean, the ideas that we've discussed here had a major impact in literally uh, conceptualizing um, uh, the autism, and uh, I am writing a book that looks, and in fact, for example, Nico Timbergen, uh, who, um, about whom we've spoken or just mentioned in the conversation today, was even one of the major figures defending this view, which is a story not many people know. But when he got his Nobel Prize in 1973, He didn't speak about instincts. He talked about autism. So, I mean, it's a story that was tangential to my current book, but it's a story of great uh, importance and significance today because, as you know, the rates of autism diagnosis are going up. So I hope to finish soon this history of autism from its identification in the 1940s to the present.
1: Wow. So I'll look forward to talking Perhaps. with you about that one too. it's <laughs> project. Thank you, Margaret. It's really been a pleasure. And thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much for the invitation. And it's
0: been really a pleasure discussing this with you.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you again next time.